Section 16 of the Argonautica. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kyle Robb. The Argonautica by Apollonius Rhodius. Translated by R.C. Seaton. Section 16. Book 4. Part 3. Now when she had dismissed the fears of her nightly visions, straightway she fared backwards, and in her subtly she bade the heroes follow, charming them on with her hand. Thereupon the host remained steadfast at the bidding of Aeson's son, but Jason drew with him the Colchian maid, and both followed the selfsame path till they reached the hall of Circe, and she in amaze at their coming bade them sit on brightly burnished seats. And they, quiet and silent, sped to the hearth and sat there, as is the want of wretched suppliants. Medea hid her face in both her hands, but Jason fixed in the ground the mighty hilted sword with which he had slain Eetes' son, nor did they raise their eyes to meet her look. And straightway Circe became aware of the doom of a suppliant and the guilt of murder. Wherefore, in reverence for the ordinance of Zeus, the god of suppliants, who is a god of wrath, yet mightily aids slayers of men, she began to offer the sacrifice with which ruthless suppliants are cleansed from guilt when they approach the altar. First, to atone for the murder still unexpiated, she held above their heads the young of a sow whose dugs yet swelled from the fruit of the womb, and, severing its neck, sprinkled their hands with the blood. And again she made propitiation with other drink offerings, calling on Zeus the cleanser, the protector of murder-stained suppliants. And all the defilements in a mass her attendants bore forth from the palace, the naiad nymphs who ministered all things to her. And within, Circe, standing by the hearth, kept burning atonement cakes without wine, praying the while that she might stay from their wrath the terrible furies, and that Zeus himself might be propitious and gentle to them both, whether with hands stained by the blood of a stranger, or, as kinsfolk, by the blood of a kinsman, they should implore his grace. But when she had wrought all her task, then she raised them up and seated them on well-polished seats, and herself sat near, face to face with them. And at once she asked them clearly for their business and their voyaging, and whence they had come to her land and palace, and had thus seated themselves as suppliants at her hearth. For in truth the hideous remembrance of her dreams entered her mind as she pondered, and she longed to hear the voice of the maiden, her kinswoman, as soon as she saw that she had raised her eyes from the ground. For all those of the race of Helios were plain to discern, since by the far flashing of their eyes they shot in front of them a gleam as of gold. So Medea told her all she asked, the daughter of Aetes of the gloomy heart, speaking gently in the Colchian tongue, both of the quest and the journeyings of the heroes, and of their toils in the swift contests, and how she had sinned through the counsels of her much-sorrowing sister and how with the sons of phrixus she had fled afar from the tyrannous horrors of her father but she shrank from telling of the murder of absurtus yet she escaped not circe's ken nevertheless in spite of all she pitied the weeping maiden and spake thus poor wretch an evil and shameful return hast thou planned not for long i ween wilt thou escape the heavy wrath of aetes but soon will he go even to the dwellings of helas to avenge the blood of his son for intolerable are the deeds thou hast done. But since thou art my suppliant and my kinswoman, no further ill shall I devise against thee at thy coming. But be gone from my halls, companioning the stranger, whosoever he be, 
this unknown one that thou hast taken in thy father's despite. And kneel not to me at my hearth, for never will I approve thy counsels and thy shameful flight. Thus she spake, and measureless anguish seized the maid, and over her eyes she cast her robe and poured forth a lamentation, until the hero took her by the hand and led her forth from the hall, quivering with fear. So they left the home of Circe. But they were not unmarked by the spouse of Zeus, son of Kronos, but Iris told her when she saw them faring from the hall. For Hera had bidden her watch what time they should come to the ship, so again she urged her and spake. Dear Iris, now come, if ever thou hast fulfilled my bidding, he thee away on light pinions, and bid Thetis arise from the sea and come hither, for need of her is come upon me. Then go to the sea beaches where the bronze anvils of Hephaestus are smitten by sturdy hammers, and tell him to still the blasts of fire until Argo pass them by. Then go to Aeolus too, Aeolus who rules the winds, children of the sky, and to him also tell my purpose so that he may make all winds cease under heaven and no breeze may ruffle the sea. Yet let the breath of the west wind blow until the heroes have reached the Phaeacian isle of Alcinous. So she spake, and straightway Iris leapt down from Olympus and cleft her way with light wings outspread. And she plunged into the Aegean Sea, where is the dwelling of Nereus. And she came to Thetis first, and by the promptings of Hera, told her tale and roused her to go to the goddess. Next she came to Hephaestus, and quickly made him cease from the clang of his iron hammers, and the smoke-grimmed bellows were stayed from their blast. And thirdly she came to Aeolus, the famous son of Hippotas. And when she had given her message to him also, and rested her swift knees from her course, then Thetis, leaving Nereus and her sisters, had come from the sea to Olympus to the goddess Hera. And the goddess made her sit by her side and uttered her word. Hearken now, Lady Thetis, to what I am eager to tell thee. Thou knowest how honored in my heart is the hero, Aeson's son, and the others that have helped him in the contest, and how I have saved them when they pass between the wandering rocks, where roar terrible storms of fire and the waves foam round the rugged reefs, and now past the mighty rock of Scylla and Charybdis horribly belching, a course awaits them. But thee indeed from thy infancy did I tend with my own hands, and love beyond all others that dwell in the salt sea, because thou didst refuse to share the couch of Zeus for all his desire. For to him such deeds are ever dear, to embrace either goddesses or mortal women. But in reverence for me and with fear in thy heart thou didst shrink from his love. And then he swore a mighty oath that thou shouldst never be called the bride of an immortal god. Yet he ceased not from spying thee against thy will until Reverend Themis declared to him the whole truth, how that it was thy fate to bear a son mightier than his sire. Wherefore he gave thee up, for all his desire, fearing lest another should be his match and rule the immortals, and in order that he might ever hold his own dominion. But I gave thee the best of the sons of the earth to be thy husband, that thou mightest find a marriage dear to thy heart and bear children. And I summoned to the feast the gods, one and all, and with my own hand I raised the bridal torch, in return for the kindly honor thou didst pay me. But come, let me tell a tale that erreth not. When thy son shall come to the Elysian plain, he whom now in the home of Charon the centaur water-nymphs are tending, though he still craves thy mother milk, it is fated that he be the husband of Medea, Yeti's daughter. Do thou aid thy daughter-in-law as a mother-in-law should, and aid Peleus himself. Why is thy wrath so steadfast? He was blinded by folly, for blindness comes even upon the gods. Surely at my behest I deem that Hephaestus will cease from kindling the fury of his flame, and that Aeolus, son of Hippotas, will check his swift rushing winds, all but the steady west wind, until they reach the havens of the Phaeacians. Do thou devise a return without bane. 
The rocks and the tyrannous waves are my fear. They alone and them thou canst foil with thy sister's aid. And let them not fall in their helplessness into Charybdis, lest she swallow them in one gulp, or approach the hideous lair of Scylla, Ausonian Scylla the deadly, whom night-wandering Hecate, who is called Critaeus, bare to Phores, lest swooping upon them with her horrible jaws she destroy the chiefest of the heroes, but guide their ship in the course where there shall be still a hair's breadth escape from destruction. Thus she spake, and Thetis answered with these words, If the fury of the ravening flame and the stormy wind cease in very deed, surely will I promise boldly to save the ship, even though the waves bar the way, if only the west wind blows fresh and clear. But it is time to fare on a long and measureless path, in quest of my sisters who will aid me, and to the spot where the ship's hawsers are fastened, that at early dawn the heroes may take thought to win their home return. She spake, and darting down from the sky fell amid the eddies of the dark blue sea, and she called to aid her the rest of the Nereids, her own sisters, and they heard her and gathered together, and Thetis declared to them Hera's behests, and quickly sped them all on their way to the Ausonian sea, and herself, swifter than the flash of an eye or the shafts of the sun when it rises upwards from a far distant land, hastened swiftly through the sea, until she reached the Aeaean beach of the Tyrrhenian mainland. And the heroes she found by the ship taking their pastime with coitus and shooting of arrows. And she drew near and just touched the hand of Aeaeus's son, Peleus, for he was her husband. Nor could anyone see her clearly, but she appeared to his eyes alone, and thus addressed him. No longer now must ye stay sitting on the Tyrrhenian beach, but at dawn loosen the hostors of your swift ship, in obedience to Hera, your helper. For at her behest the maiden daughters of Nereus have met together to draw your ship through the midst of the rocks which are called Plankti, for that is your destined path. But do thou show my person to no one, when thou seest us come to meet time, but keep it secret in thy mind, lest thou anger me still more than thou didst anger me before so recklessly. She spake and then vanished into the depths of the sea, but sharp pain smote Peleus, for never before had he seen her come, since first she left her bridal chamber and bed in anger on account of noble Achilles, then a babe. For she ever encompassed the child's mortal flesh in the night with the flame of fire, and day by day she anointed with ambrosia his tender frame, so that he might become immortal, and that she might keep off from his body loathsome old age. But Peleus leapt up from his bed and saw his son gasping in the flame, and at the sight he uttered a terrible cry, fool that he was, and she heard it, and catching up the child threw him screaming to the ground, and herself like a breath of wind passed swiftly from the hall as a dream and leapt into the sea, exceeding wrath, and thereafter returned not again. Wherefore blank amazement fettered his soul, nevertheless he declared to his comrades all the bidding of Thetis. And they broke off in the midst and hurriedly ceased their contests, and prepared their meal and earth-strewn beds, whereon after supper they slept through the night as aforetime. Now when dawn the light-bringer was touching the edge of heaven, then at the coming of the swift west wind they went to their thwarts from the land, and gladly did they draw up the anchors from the deep and made the tackling ready in due order, and above spread the sail, stretching it taut with the sheets from the yard-arm, and a fresh breeze wafted the ship on, and soon they saw a fair island, Anthemoisa, where the clear-voiced sirens, daughters of Echelaus, used to beguile with their sweet songs whoever cast anchor there, and then destroy him. Then lovely Terpsichore, one of the muses, bare, united with Achelaus, and once they tended Demeter's noble daughter still unwed, and sang to her in chorus, and at that time they were fashioned in part like birds, and in part like maidens to behold. And ever on their watch from their place of prospect with its fair haven, often from many had they taken away their sweet return, consuming them with wasting desire. 
and suddenly to the heroes too they sent forth from their lips a lily-like voice and they were already about to cast from the ship the hawsers to the shore had not thracian orpheus son of oegrus stringing in his hands his bistonian lyre wrung forth the hasty snatch of a rippling melody so that their ears might be filled with the sound of his twanging and the lyre overcame the maiden's voice and the west wind and the sounding wave rushing astern bore the ship on and the sirens kept uttering their ceaseless song but even so the goodly son of teleon alone of the comrades leapt before them all from the polished bench into the sea even Bootes, his soul melted by the clear ringing voice of the sirens and he swam through the dark surge to mount the beach poor wretch quickly would they have robbed him of his return then and there but the goddess that rules eryx cyprus in pity snatched him away while yet in the eddies and graciously meeting him saved him to dwell on the lilybian height and the heroes seized by anguish left the sirens but other perils still worse destructive to ships awaited them in the meeting-place of the seas for on the one side appeared the smooth rock of scylla on the other charybdis ceaselessly spouted and roared in another part the wandering rocks were booming beneath the mighty surge where before the burning flame spurted forth from the top of the crags above the rock glowing with fire and the air was misty with smoke nor could you have seen the sun's light then though hephaestus had ceased from his toils the sea was still sending up a warm vapor hereupon on this side and on that the daughters of nereus met them and behind lady thetis set her hand to the rudder-blade to guide them amid the wandering rocks and as when in fair weather herds of dolphins come up from the depths and sport in circles around a ship as it speeds along now seen in front now behind now again at the side and delight comes to the sailors so the nereids darted upward and circled in their ranks round the ship argo while thetis guided its course and when they were about to touch the wandering rocks straightway they raised the edge of their garments over their snow-white knees and aloft on the very rocks where the waves broke they hurried along on this side and on that apart from one another and the ship was raised aloft as the current smote her and all around the furious wave mounting up broke over the rocks which at one time touched the sky like towering crags at another down in the depths were fixed fast to the bottom of the sea and the fierce waves poured over them in floods and the nereids even as maidens near some sandy beach roll their garments up to their waists out of their way and sport with a shapely rounded ball then they catch it one from another and send it high into the air and it never touches the ground so they in turn one from another sent the ship through the air over the waves as it sped on ever away from the rocks and round them the water spouted and foamed and lord hephaestus himself standing on the summit of a smooth rock and resting his massy shoulder on the handle of his hammer beheld them and the spouse of zeus beheld them as she stood above the gleaming heaven and she threw her arms around athena such fear seized her as she gazed and as long as the space of a day is lengthened out in springtime so long a time did they toil heaving the ship between the loud echoing rocks then again the heroes caught the wind and sped onward and swiftly they passed the mead of thernacia where the kind of helios fed there the nymphs like sea-mews plunged beneath the depths when they had fulfilled the behests of the spouse of zeus and at the same time the bleeding of sheep came to the heroes through the mist and the lowing of kine near at hand smote their ears and over the dewy lees phaethusa the youngest of the daughters of helios tended the sheep bearing in her hand a silver crook while lampatia herding the kine wielded a staff of glowing orichalcum as she followed these kine that the heroes saw feeding by the river stream over the plain and the water meadow not one of them was dark in hue but all were white as milk 
and glorying in their horns of gold. So they passed them by in the daytime, and when night came on, they were cleaving a great sea gulf, rejoicing, until again early rising dawn threw light upon their course. End of section 16. Recording by Kyle Robb.